0: This is the K-Cut, a podcast about cinema. My name is James. I'm a stay-at-home husband and content creator and artist. I'm one half of the Preferred to Stay podcast. I produce and release music under the A-list boutique Paul, and I am part of the Films Fatale writing team.
1: I'm Rachel, and I also write for Films Fatale. I love classic cinema, international movies, and I'm very interested in lost films.
0: My name is Andreas.
2: I am the creator and one of the main writers of Films Fatale. Uh, happy birthday to Films Fatale, which uh, it's now in its fourth year of... You know, running, Uh, it's uh, over three years old now, um, as of January 1st, and yeah, uh, thanks to everybody who's been checking this out, and for checking out the K-Cut. So, uh, welcome back to another edition of the Cinematic Smorgasbord, which we run every single first Tuesday of the month, but before we get into that, uh, you know, fun time, uh, bear with us, we will for sure get into the nooks and crannies of everything. We just resolved uh, the year 2021, and because the mortgage Board, like any other episode, is mostly about recommending films or sharing cinematic experiences, Rachel, what are we doing right before we do our, uh, our usual duties?
1: Well, if you're anything like me, you tend to mark holidays by watching movies, and so I want to know, what was the last film you watched in 2021, and what is the first one you saw in 2022?
2: Sounds exciting to me, uh yeah, I feel like that's a great way to at least start off the year um yeah, all right, uh who wants to go first?
1: well, I'll go um so on december thirty first I watched Flea, which was really good um it's on the short list with the Academy for international documentary and animated film feature, and it it's really moving, it's beautifully drawn. And I'm really hoping it gets in for all three, which would be the first time that ever happened. On New Year's Day, I watched Red Rocket, which is basically as far as you can get from Flea. (laughs) Excellent lead (laughs) performance. And I mean, it's Sean Baker, so you're always in for an interesting time. And I thought it was really well done. Uh, Absurd, dark, hilarious, painful. So both of those movies I would recommend.
2: Yeah, I'm dying to see both of those. And as a... Indie Spirits member, like uh, you yourself are, um, I'm going to be uh, anticipating watching those very soon. Uh, James, what about you?
0: So, the last film I actually watched before the year was over was actually my smorgasbord assignment, but I'll be talking about that later on. So, I'm going to talk about the film I saw a couple days before, which is in theaters. Uh, my wife and I went to go see Spider Man No Way Home. Aww. And I have to say, it's probably. This Spider-Man trilogy is probably the best in the MCU, and this was just overall probably one of the better superhero movies, especially with the concept they went with and other things that happen. I'm not going to spoil if you haven't seen it yet, but I definitely recommend if you like superhero movies. And yeah, I'm really interested to see where they take the character next.
1: I even don't really like superhero movies all that much, but I really, really enjoyed the Spider-Man trilogy so far.
0: Yeah, it sounds like they found like a really
2: good, uh, perfect middle ground between the uh the sillier uh, Sam Raimi films and the uh the the deadly serious, uh, you know, whatever they're trying to do with the Amazing Spider-Man trilogy. So, or not even trilogy, they didn't get that far. Attempted but, trilogy, you know, you get the idea. <laughs> the attempted trilogy. Um. Yeah, for my uh my last film of twenty twenty one, what did I do? Um. I uh, God, I actually need a second to think about this. <laughs> um, outside of my Smorgasbord stuff, what did I watch? Um, I, I've just had too much too much on my plate. Sorry, I might actually actually have to give you a sec. <laughs> um, does, does it have to be like a new release, or could it no. just be like anything? Oh, does it doesn't have to be a new release. Okay, so uh, in terms of new releases, um, I was fortunate enough to see. A lot of amazing stuff like Souvenir Part 2, which uh, the first one's fantastic. The second one's even better. Um, Parallel Mothers, which is uh, Pedro Almodovar, who you can never go wrong with. But that actually wasn't like the last stuff that I watched uh, in terms of uh, movies in 2021. So I had just finished watching every episode of The Office for my TV research, which I never got around to um, until now. Now I've seen every episode. And my my girlfriend and I um basically you know as a salute to the series that i just finished did a double feature of the 40 year old virgin and Anchorman, which are uh two of our favorite steve growl films so yeah when it comes to him being like a comedian anyway so um yeah there were uh many sides were split and many tears were shed from laughing so that was a great way to wrap up the year um In terms of starting the year, I haven't watched anything this year yet outside of um, television stuff because, again, I'm doing research on that. So um, in terms of uh, what I've been watching on TV anyway, uh, WKRP in Cincinnati, uh, I've enjoyed a few episodes of that. Never seen a single second of it before. Really good stuff. I'll let you know when the next movie is.
1: That's awesome. So uh, what's at the meat of our episode this week?
2: Yes, uh, we just finished the uh, the slices of bread, uh, 2021 and 2022 to uh, cap off the sandwich. Uh, let's get it to yeah the the meat of it and the condiments. So um, the the food allegories are because this is uh, what we call the cinematic smorgasbord. We again do this every first Tuesday of every month. So what we do is we love the idea of sharing cinematic tastes. So uh, Rachel's into golden age stuff, but also awards, darlings, international cinema. James is into a lot of low budget stuff, indie stuff, the occasional experimental thing. Um, I myself am into art house international stuff. Got a bit of a guilty pleasure side as well. And we like to share our tastes with one another. So what we do each month is we recommend a film to one of the other co-hosts that we've never seen before. And we're going to get into what our findings are in this episode. Furthermore, we each have a film that none of us have seen before that we like to share all together. So when it comes to uh, what you listeners at home can join in, think of it as a little bit of like a book club. Yeah, we report our findings on that as well. Did we like the film that none of us have seen before? How's it going to go? And that's that's about it. So we're going to get into that collective pick in the second half of the episode. But first off, we're going to get into our individual picks. So who wants to go first on their findings?
1: Um, well, James threw me an interesting one. So uh, let's talk about that. It's Gregor Rocky's Splendor, which I think was made in 1999 or so, just as the 90s were dying. And we were heading into the incredibly candy colored 2000s. First of all, two points this is a stealth remake of the Philadelphia story and I will die on this hill. And second, this is the most aggressively nineties thing ever put on cinema. <laughs> Somebody literally <laughs> drinks orbits.
0: Oh, that's amazing that you say that because he is very in the nineties. He was very much nineties.
1: That, and that aesthetic. makes a ton of sense. I, I think I messaged James when I was first looking into it. Like, did you just assign me the music video for steal my sunshine? Because I'm pretty sure you did. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it's, this is the kind of movie, it's very low budget, it's very hyperactive, I would say. There's a lot of crazy humor going on here. Um, The characters are quite appealing. I would say also, it's fairly flawed. Um, I didn't like Kelly McDonald's character, I don't know what she was doing there. But honestly, it's a really loving look at an unusual type of relationship and all the complications that can go on. And it's quite zany. It really could have been put in the 1930s, except for obvious reasons.
0: Right. Yeah, it was definitely something that I've been meaning to watch, and I just never got around to it. And then I thought, you know what, I should watch this. And then I thought, oh, Rachel might be interested in this.
1: Yeah, it really hits the same beats of that era.
0: Yeah, I think because I read an interview where he was discussing the movie and he said he wanted to kind of create that kind of film that has that kind of Cary Grant feel, you know, it's, you know, it's got the emotion, but it also has this like kind of like glossy sheen to it. And I was like, you know what, that actually if more filmmakers try to make something with the intention of being just genuine in general, I think, you know, art overall could just be doing better in certain regards but yeah i think it's just also i like it because it's very much a departure from his usual work because his usual work is a bit kind of strange and out there but i also think he was often referred to as a director who was ahead of his time but this film just feels like it was just released too early like this film could be made now and i think it would probably do pretty well given a film like that at the time you have three people in an open relationship that's pretty different as far as cinema is concerned Mm -hmm. especially in the 90s but if you did that now i think it could be very successful
1: that said i kind of love it as the sort of unintentional period piece that it is like it's so much of its time um and it and it is a little off the beaten path but that also kind of fits the era i also do think it was very accessible considering its subject matter um it's it's cute it's a genuinely cute movie
0: yeah it i I like that it kind of it's almost wholesome outside of like the sexual content.
1: But even then it's a loving relationship. Like they have their arguments, but it, you know.
0: <laughs> oh yeah. Also, I love Kathleen Robertson as a lead. Like oh, I'm yeah. really surprised she didn't get like really big. Cause she is a fairly good actress.
1: Yeah. I think she did a great job considering that she has to juggle a lot in the movie. Oh yeah. Yeah. Andres, have you seen Splendor?
2: I sadly did not get around to it, but uh, as we always say, I'm going to have to check that out. <laughs> uh, I could tell you what I did do, though.
1: What did you see?
2: Yeah, so this one is a very interesting one because um, on Films Fatel, I actually have uh, what I call uh, a wall of directors where I have all my top 100 and you know, then some filmmakers of all time. What I'm eventually going to try and do is watch every single film from each of these filmmakers and rank them all within their filmographies. And I've always really liked David Lean. And I feel like there are two halves of David Lean's filmography. There are his iconic epics that everybody kind of knows and loves, like The Bridge on the River Kwai, especially Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zervago. And, you know, there are some people who will love stuff like A Passage to India, etc., etc. And the previous stuff, where it's still very grand in scale, but it's a lot more intimate storytelling, a lot of romantic stuff as well. So you've got, like, Brief Encounter, which is one of the greatest romantic dramas, great expectations. His uh, his version of Oliver Twist is really good. Having said that, this is such an interesting film that Rachel recommended to me. It's called Summertime. And I say that because I just pointed out these two halves. This, to me, felt like the bridge in between the two identities of David Lane. So if there was any way that I could continue with watching With watching and assessing his filmography, I feel like this wasn't the perfect place to start, because now I could see why both halves exist, how he went from one to the other. It's an excellent film. I absolutely, like, I really enjoyed it.
1: That's wonderful. And it's interesting you say that, because it did come at a rather transitional point in his career. Um, He's always cited it as his personal favorite of his films, even though he's had much bigger successes with other movies, which has intrigued me. And Hepburn always considered David Lean one of the finest directors ever.
2: Yeah, I feel like after seeing this film, um, I've always respected David Lean. If he made my top 100 filmmakers list, that says enough. But having seen this, to me, it's like would I argue that this is one of his best films? I would say no, because I've seen so much, um, even though, you know, we were just told the contrary. But if anybody else made this, I feel like this would be their best film. And that, to me, kind of cemented that, my God, maybe David Lean really is, like, one of the greatest filmmakers I've ever seen. If this is, like, not even close to his top five best works and it's still this good, it's incredible. Like, first off, the, uh, the Technicolor... I feel oh, yeah? like there are some filmmakers who really did the Technicolor thing really well. They have innovators like the Archers. I feel like uh, even um, Jean Renoir did a, a really good job in his 50s era. But if if there was a filmmaker who really knew how to use Technicolor and make it an epic scale type thing and really, really show the intimacy of, a, of an area, a geographical location, a city... And have the technicolor and have the epicness of, you know, a, a large-scale story. It's David Lean, and this is such a good example of that.
1: It's also impossible to watch this movie without Googling plane tickets to Venice. He just portrays the city so beautifully.
2: Right? And it's like, you know, it almost feels like uh, like a Romero film where you feel like you're actually there. And he's really good at that because, you know, if you watch something like, uh, you know, again, by uh, Eric Romare. So, you know, if you're looking at like Claire's Knee or whatnot, you feel like you're there in a little bit of a different way, like a a yearning, like I want to visit this place. When it's a David Lean film, you feel like you're like in the midst of this uh, wartime revolutionary type event or this excursion. In this instance, yeah, it's this escape to Venice and you feel like you can... Ring your hand, you know, or sorry, you feel like you can run your hand in the water and feel like, (laughs) Oh no, don't do that. But you feel like you can, you feel like you're like right there and you can do it. You feel like you can kind of feel like that, that heat, or like the wind as you're like sticking your head out of the train window. You feel like you're, you're there with Catherine Hepburn. It's just so fascinating.
1: Yeah. And this was also the second, I guess, of Hepburn's major spinster roles. And so it, I, I would say it's the finest of her career, although you could probably argue with the African queen.
2: Yeah. And that's another thing, you know, it's not even just, uh, how much just solidified David lean for me. There's also solidified Catherine Hepburn, because again, I would argue this isn't one of her best performances, but if anybody else did this, you'd be like, damn, that's like a career best. So, uh, you know, she's still really good in this. And I feel like, especially towards the end, I don't want to, I don't want to say too much. Um, you feel moved by her. Like it's a lot more of like an internalized performance from what I'm used to. Cause I've seen like her, her theatrical side, I've seen her screwball side to see her like, just have like a nuanced internal visceral performance where you feel like you can empathize with her and exactly what's written on her face. Yeah. That's a really interesting side of hers to see for sure. Like she's really versatile.
1: It's this hidden little treasure in both their careers that I think a lot of people overlook.
2: I would agree with that. I feel like, again, I'm not going to pretend that this is my favorite David Lean film, but is it a damn good one? Absolutely. Like, I actually think it's one where if you've exhausted his must-sees, I'd be like, go see this one next. It's actually really worthwhile. It's, it's, It's a great film.
1: Did you watch it, James?
0: I did watch it. What did you think? I thought it was enjoyable. I do have one main point. They really went hard when it came to the Technicolor.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Just how crisp and vibrant the environment looks is always like I couldn't look away. Especially shooting in a place like Italy, I think Technicolor probably works best in a lot of other countries because of, like, you know, think about all the architecture looks or the cityscapes or just even her when she, you know, went to the shop.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I went to Venice about three years ago. And when I stepped out of the train station, I said, this is just like summertime. Like the movie caught it. It's I can't explain it. The colors are that bright. It is that pretty.
2: That's excellent, though, because there's somebody like me who I've been to Italy, but I never went to Venice for some r- reason. It just didn't happen. So it's like there's somebody like me who feels like I'm, I'm in a place that I've never visited before. But to get that validation from somebody who's actually visited there, you know, decades later, no less. That That's really good. That means that David Lean really captured or not even just, you know, within the time period where the story takes place, but also this timelessness about it where it doesn't matter. The geographical location still has this identity and it, you know, it still resonates when you go.
1: Yeah, I couldn't believe how how much it looked the same, even after all these years. And so there's something timeless about it.
2: And speaking of timelessness, so um I'm going to ask James about your pick now because uh, this is uh oh, yeah. my my all-time favorite movie I think. You know, it's the one I've got like a couple of picks that kind of rotate, but this one I feel like I say the most often is my favorite movie of all time. Uh what did what did I curse
0: you with this time? You assigned me Ingmar Bergman's Persona, which you've never seen a
2: film of his before, correct?
0: So, I'm about to drop a bombshell. Because I'm neurotic, to prepare for this movie, I watched all 26 features he did prior.
2: No, Seriously? did he actually?
0: Yes.
1: What? Wow! If you notice how
0: quiet I was in the chat the past couple of weeks, that's why.
1: Even the lesser ones wow. like Brink oh. All of them. Oh my god.
0: Even the, even the ones that are oh on the box set. God. All 26. I had, the, the few Wait. I didn't... The few that weren't... Because I, I didn't actually... Open my box set it was on criterion channel so i just watched them all that way but all the ones that weren't on there they were on youtube
2: wait so i have got to ask you um so uh, first off that's why you watch persona like right before we were we were supposed to record in our usual time slot yes okay um uh, i i i do apologize that i had to keep moving the schedule along because my goodness that's uh that's 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 a big trek but before we get into persona because i it sounds like we've got something more interesting to ask um oh how how was it how was this trip
0: (laughs) yeah it's funny because i was like making sure i didn't say anything to this moment so i could capture your reaction so i still think you're joking no (laughs) No, i'm serious
1: he's messing with us
0: (laughs) No, I'm serious. No, no, no. Yeah, no. Jesus like, yeah, I, I watch it all, including It Rains on Our Love, Music in Darkness, like the ones that aren't even on in that Criterion doesn't have.
2: And the stuff that's like considered his worst, which I would still argue are pretty good. So, I mean, that's amazing.
0: Yeah, it was definitely interesting. It was also kind of a pregame to prepare for the massive Oscar binge I'm going to be doing soon. Okay. I will say. It's really interesting watching his work. Because I watched it in chronological order, except for one, which I ended up I ended up skipping one and jumped back when I realized it. Oh, uh, which one? I didn't watch Music in Darkness after Port of Call because when you look up on Wikipedia, you have to go to his filmography page in order to see all of them. Because on the Bergman page itself, it has selected works. So it doesn't right. show it. So uh... I skipped one by accident. I was like, oh, I got to go back. But it's really interesting because... With all the things I heard of Persona, I didn't realize a lot of his earliest stuff was primarily rooted in relationship dramas. Mm-hmm. But then I had to think, oh, he's been making films since the 40s. That makes sense. And then I found out he was a playwright. And I'm like, oh, that's why his stuff has this very theatrical feel to it. So you can, it's very apparent he's a playwright. But I will say the biggest hallmark, I would say, is his consistency because like you said even his weaker ones mm-hmm. are still pretty good. I will say though I was happy when I got to 7th Seal because I was kind of growing tired of this motif he had going on. And I was like, "All right, come on, give me something more interesting." Then I saw 7th Seal and I was like, "Oh, okay. This in like wild strawberries kind of is a stylistic shift because he's kind of playing with things that aren't of reality. But overall, I wanted to get through because I'm really big on... I don't really believe in a starter film when I get into directors. Like If I want to get into a director, I'm going to watch it. I want to see how their career progress. I also found it really strange, the film that he made right before Persona, All These Women. It is such an (laughs) awkward piece. Yes, often considered his
2: worst film.
0: How do you do... 20 years of black and white, and then just you know, black and white dramas, then out of nowhere, oh, I'll do a comedy in color. It was just so weird.
1: Yeah, I don't think he ever sat that easily with comedy.
0: No, it's like
2: a really silly satire of uh, luckily, you've seen, I think you've seen this by now, James, uh, eight and a half. So, uh, really out of left field, and a lot of people really don't care for that one.
0: Yeah, it was just really awkward. And then after that, I got to Persona.
2: Which, before we get into Persona, what was your favorite film that came before Persona? I'm guessing it was The Seventh Seal because of the transitionary uh, element to it? or
0: No, not necessarily. I See, it's really interesting because like I like Seventh Seal. I, I, was, I like Wild Strawberries more than Seventh Seal. But I'd have to say, although the earlier stuff, I really enjoyed Port of Call.
2: Wow, that's a very atypical pick. Yeah, okay. I don't know.
0: I, I'd say that. Uh, uh, Prison was also good. I like that because that was kind of like trying to play on like something a little bit more abstract with how they had the story put together. And then uh, the Virgin spring I enjoyed, but I didn't realize like kind of the climax. Well, the big tragedy and then the kind of like what is not, not necessarily climax, but when things kind of, when the revenge scene happens, I found it a bit uneventful because it seemed to sort of just happen. But I will say I did like it because it was it was another deviation because in this period, it was like he spent 10 years doing a lot of similar things. And once he gets to Seventh Seal, he definitely tries to move away from what he did, except for all these women, which was just strange. But just he's he's definitely trying to it's almost like he's trying to try out different voices within himself because they're vastly different. For sure, for sure, and then he would
2: get to the most uh, drastic of these voices, uh, persona. So let's let's hop into that one. Uh, how? I, I guess it is good that you checked out more of his stuff because you would automatically assume that everything he would do would be like persona, which couldn't be further from the truth. But how was it?
0: I really enjoyed persona. I will say, persona is a work that shows there can be a stark contrast between theatrical and cinematic. Yes. And this was a dramatic departure considering it's not him trying to, a a lot of the works are exercises in the human condition. This is an exercise as cinema as a language, Mm -hmm. not just with storytelling, but with technique and format, and I think that amplifies the situation in the movie. So, for those who don't know what this movie is about, it deals with a young nurse named Alma who is caring for a well-known actress, Elizabeth, who just goes mute out of nowhere. And to try to help her, they move to a cottage where she cares for her, and you know tries to help her through her problems. You know tries to get her to speak. But then the most interesting thing happens. She doesn't speak almost sort of kind of like oversells herself on her life and just gives away pretty much gives away all her secrets, you know, just cannot stop talking, which is a stark contrast to Elizabeth, who doesn't speak virtually for the like 99% of the film, which is fascinating itself because you have a whole main character whose function isn't to speak. But that act alone says the most of what's going on. And then eventually there's this kind of blur in reality for Alma because she's, it's almost like she thinks their existences are almost merging. While simultaneously there's this kind of, she has this infatuation with Elizabeth, but also resentment because she's losing understanding of the purpose of them being there. Because even as a viewer, you start to question, why are they there? And is Elizabeth pulling strings because there's their interactions fairly awkward for certain parts of the movie, and uh, you know, and it's apparent when Alma finds a letter that she's sending to her doctor that kind of reveals what she's feeling about the situation, and it does a great job of doing this kind of universal concept that we will see, kind of not necessarily directly replicated, but this idea of loss of identity, which is seen in a multitude of different movies. I mean, or also just like, you know, these two characters that are so similar, but so different kind of like how we saw in a, uh, the double life of Veronique where it had this kind of persona esque situation, even though those two girls only met and they didn't even meet. It was in passing in a photo or what we see later in Mulholland drive.
2: There's also three women by Altman.
0: Oh, I'll have to see that one then. Yeah. I think it's also also just the really obscure techniques. Like the intro is amazing because it's all these really strange clips and then this boy's walking through a room and he puts his hand on a projector where well, the face is obscured and you don't know who it is. It could be almost Omel- it could be Elizabeth. And then to further break from reality, there's that really the cl- classic clip where she's looking out at Elizabeth and then the film breaks on screen. Like it starts to it starts to break apart, and then the frame it shows a frame, and then it burns out, and then you just get these flashes of images, which is funny because I noticed it was some of these clips were from uh, I forgot which film it was. It was a movie, a fictional movie that was being shown in a previous movie of his. I can't remember which one it is, but yeah, I think it's just really interesting because it's this idea of cinema being more than something just to entertain people or just to tell a story because it's something you could literally remake at any time and it could have the same effect. And also it doesn't date itself. Like it doesn't no, tie itself to its time. Yeah. It's, I understand why this movie's in the conversation of greatest films of all time and why he, you know, is considered one of the greats because of this. Cause it's, it's kind of, you know, I think one of the things I appreciate the sixties is because it kind of set the stage for the seventies because This was the area where everyone kind of was figuring, you know, before it was pushing the boundaries of production, you know, the 40s, 50s, it was like, okay, let's get the best performances. Let's, you know, build the best sets. You know, if you're using black and white, make sure to make sure that it stands out. Or if you have color, make sure it's bright. And that was moving forward. But once you get to the 60s and once kind of almost kicked out by French New Wave, it was this idea of, is cinema just for just telling stories, or is it something to please the senses? Because there were things that like like that breakaway of the film wasn't necessarily something for the story. It's almost to put you in their situation, like what's real, what's not. You know, and 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 it's I can tell his influence goes very far. And it's funny, there was one film I was watching, I forgot which one it was. It was like this. Oh, yes, Winterlight. I watched Winterlight and I was like why does this look familiar? And I thought, oh wait, Paul Schrader made this same movie and called it first reformed. (laughs) Kind of. It's so interesting how artists from back then are still being emulated today. I mean, obviously Paul Schrader is from a generation who grew up on those films, but yeah, I think it was, yeah, it's just a really fascinating piece. And I think it's very telling of what was to come. And I think we're kind of returning to concepts like that because even I'd say Jordan Peele's us almost operates on this kind of narrative as well. And that's what, 50 years later? Yeah. So yeah, overall, I'm very thankful for this assignment. I would have gotten to it at some point, but I'm glad this kind of pushed me to dive into this filmography.
1: And dive, you certainly did.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I just, I do things like that sometimes.
2: Uh, Rachel, I know you've seen Persona before. What do you, uh, what do you think of it?
1: Yeah, um, I saw it a few years ago. I have to admit, I saw it without subtitles, so I lost a lot of it. But <laughs> just looking at it as a visual experience, it was overpowering. When I reviewed Brink of Life for Films Vital a few weeks ago, I could see, even though it wasn't his writing, a lot of the sort of embryonic tropes, so to speak, that would eventually appear in Persona. The motifs were already coming into place. And it was like with this film, he graduated into a new level of filmmaking.
0: Definitely.
2: Yeah, I uh, obviously adore this film. I could uh, spend another two hours talking about it, but I won't. I'll just quickly say that I find it the finest piece of uh, postmodern filmmaking where at all times you're distanced from the film, and even when you, like, finally, like, get into it and you're like, okay, okay, I'm getting sucked into this, like, the film literally breaks, like, halfway through. Um, seeing this projected at TIFF... Oh, so um, ...one of the finest... Oh, my God, yeah, one of the finest uh film going experiences i've ever had especially the part where the projector breaks and it's like you can actually like see the light of the projector like kind of like emphasizing the empty space it was just surreal just did
1: amazing. anyone in the audience freak out and think of was real?
2: <laughs> no this wasn't a uh this wasn't a, a lumiere film with the train arriving at the station moment <laughs> luckily not <laughs> um I think because, uh, even the people who had never seen Persona before, I think because of how it starts and kind of the, the nature of the film, we also had a, a pre-talk, uh, there was like this lecture given. Um, I think people uh, kind of were expecting something a little, a little crazy. Um, yeah, you know, uh, for somebody who's never seen it before, James, you know, you absolutely, uh, nailed it when you said that it's this, uh, this breaking of the cinematic language and not in a way that, uh that uh, Jean-Luc Godard might have wanted to when Breathless was like his debut film. Um, Like you said, Bergman was doing this for a while. He was making movies for a while. And uh, bam, I don't know where he makes this. And I hope you continue your Bergman watching because you're going to stumble upon films like uh, Cries and Whispers, which is my second favorite of his, which is uh, not nearly as uh, rule-breaking, but it's it's pretty out there as well. And I think it's fantastic. There's also um, Hour of the Wolf. Um, through glass, darkly. The silence. There's a lot of really good psychological or uh, you know borderline experimental things coming your way. So, um, and I also wanted to bring up in case it wasn't obvious. Uh, if I told you that Woody Allen has said that Bergman's his favorite director of all time, especially because he watched all of his pre-Persona stuff, that should not surprise you anymore, right, James?
0: Oh no! It's funny because it became a here when I saw <laughs> when I saw Seventh Seal, like the scene at the end of Love and Death when he's with Death, I was like, oh, yeah. so he totally, he admits that he rips off of his favorite directors. Yeah. But it's like he does it in his own way. It's funny because I waited too long. My original plan was to watch his entire filmography before this, but I, it just didn't end up happening because I waited too long.
2: <laughs> he's got a lot of movies. Uh, but instead of shedding additional light on, on Bergman, who obviously I love, let's talk about the under-discussed uh, Uh, Ida Lupino, who, you know, she shot our communal pick this week, which was chosen by you, Rachel. Why did you pick Never Fear?
1: Yes, Never Fear I thought was interesting because, for one thing, Ida Lupino is amazing. She's an extremely talented director, and she was one of very few women working and directing in in her time. Um, I heard this movie had a reputation for being quite realistic for its era, and so I wanted to see that because I think we see the Golden Age as being rather overblown drama. And I wanted to look at how the film handled infectious disease in an era when that's literally all we talk about. Like, I mean, from our perspective.
2: I think it was a really good pick because when I was doing my decades research, so like watching like over 100 films for each decade, which uh, I I regret, but I don't regret at the same time, I did stumble upon The Hitchhiker, which uh, is often considered her magnum opus. And it's actually the basis of... uh, I think of a Twilight Zone episode, is it not? And it was one that really got her name out there, especially today when you look back, when it comes to um, the, like the, the tail end of the film noir movement. So getting a chance to see something else by her was quite a privilege. So I appreciate that. Thank you.
1: Absolutely. So yeah, what did we all think of it?
0: I thought it was enjoyable. I'm glad polio isn't a problem anymore because that seems like it was rough.
1: Oh, yeah, I was immediately Googling, did they vaccinate for polio in my province of Canada in the year of my birth?
2: (laughs) Yeah, especially because um, Ida Lupino uh, starts the film out. It's not long at all. That's like 80 minutes. It's a really short film. Um, She starts it off, though, from like a first-person perspective when it starts to hit the main character. So you can see, like, the blurring of the lens, uh, you know, in terms of, like, trying to show, like, you know, one's vision getting lost or like, you know, zoning out. And I mean, for its time, considering it's a forties film with like probably not much of a budget. Uh, yeah. The, the artistic eye in this film, you know, when it comes to stuff like that uh, was actually quite good.
1: Yeah. And it was based on her own experience as a teenager when she got it. Um, which I found to be interesting because when you've gone through something and you make a piece of art about it, it's informed in a way that somebody else making that film can never be.
0: Yeah. It, it felt very personal watching it. Also, it's like, I can't imagine the struggle of that, but also she's also dealing with, and i always find this interesting because we kind of saw this behavior in summertime, the idea that one might not feel like they're deserving of love due to their situation. mm-hmm because she has a guy who's madly in love with her puts his dream of dancing on pause to work as a real estate agent, just so he can be there. And she's literally pushing him away. Also side note on the dancing, Mm -hmm. them practicing in the beginning was just an absolute treasure.
1: Oh yeah. That was great. That was
0: a great scene. Like just composition of the shots, the camera movement,
1: very risque for the time.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's, yeah, I can't imagine what it was like back then. And just to see it, it's and and that doesn't even personify like the actual horrors of that disease at that time. Because this is a this is a place she's at a, she's in an institute where, you know, there are people being helped and some people are making kind of progress.
1: Yeah. And um, some of the actors in that film were real patients from that institute.
0: Oh, wow. Wow.
1: Yeah, especially in the giant square dance scene they have.
2: Were these people that um, Ida knew when she experienced it or was it just like too much of a gap in, you know, between her experience?
1: It had been 20 years by then or almost 20 years. So I. I
2: Okay, so probably not.
1: Yeah, I guess one thing that really impressed me was how much nuance there was in the lead relationship. And you never quite knew where it was going. And then she meets this other guy and you think it's going to go one way. And just the movie never quite went in the form of cliche. And I really appreciated that.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of left turns.
2: Yeah,
1: mm-hmm.
2: which uh, I guess was really appropriate for when she ended up doing The Hitchhiker because, again, that's like a twisty-turny uh, you know, film noir, again, once the, the film movement was was kind of on its last legs. But um, with something like this, uh, Never Fear, which um, if you're trying to look up this film after the fact, it's uh, also titled The Young Lovers, which I kind of prefer the title Never Fear because Young Lovers, to me, kind of... Gives you this this idea that everything's going to be okay in the end, um, even though it's like a Hollywood film, and you can kind of guess that things are going to head in that direction. The title "Never Fear" kind of still implies more of like the fighting through polio aspect, but yeah, at times because it's twisty and turning, it's like, is this going to dissolve this relationship? Like it, it, it seemed like it certainly could have at times, even though let's be honest, we all know where this was heading. Um, At least there was a a little bit of that uncertainty, which I feel like Lupino is very good at. Cool. Well, if uh, neither of you have seen The Hitchhiker after seeing this, I would highly recommend it. It is for sure her magnum opus and a very, very uh, intense, anxious type of film, especially for the 50s. So... Uh, I would highly recommend that, but that is not the smorgasbord pick that I'm going to make. We're actually going to get into our next smorgasbord assignments, and that's going to be very exciting. But before we do that, I'm going to suggest you find us on our socials.
1: Right. We are under the K Cut on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We like to post little film facts and things like that. And it's also where you can keep up with our smorgasbord picks, which will be happening right now.
2: Yes, they shall. Yes, they shall. So, first off, we're going to give our individual assignments. And after that, uh, it's actually my turn to pick the, uh, the collective assignment, which uh, I am extremely excited for. But that's not that time yet. Who wants to go first for their individual? What's mine? Okay, so, Rachel, I believe you're giving one to James, correct?
1: Yes, I am. So, we all knew this was coming because we've covered uh, James's favorite film, Upstream Color, a few months ago. We covered Andres' favorite film, Persona, today. So, James, can you guess what you're getting? Oh,
0: I'm getting Holiday?
1: You are getting Holiday, and I know I've Yo. been threatening you with Holiday for months. And yes, we are getting back on the Hatburn train. If we turn this podcast into a drinking game and we said drink every time Rachel brings up Hatburn, we'd all die. But the point is, you're getting Holiday, and you're going to have a great time.
0: Awesome. I've been waiting for this to be honest. Like I've been avoiding watching it because I know I knew you were going to suggest, and I was like, no, I'm not going to take that away from her. I want this to be a smorgasbord thing.
1: Oh, I hope you have fun.
2: It's it's a great film. I actually um, I listened to Rachel's advice uh, two years ago at this point, which weird thing to say because it's 2022. Uh, two years ago at this point, and um, it was worthwhile. Rachel Rachel knew what she was talking about. It's it's a great pick.
1: All right, so then I've given James his. What's mine, Andreas?
2: Okay, so on a similar wavelength, uh, this is one that I have not shut up about on this podcast, and I'll say this, it's one of my all-time, I could safely say it now, it's one of my all-time favorite animated films, and I think it is underseen, it's underrated, I think it's one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. I've actually never seen it twice, because I can't bring myself to, because I was crying too damn much the first time I saw it. Um, I'm recommending to you The Red Turtle, which is a fantastic Studio Ghibli release directed by Mikael Dudok-Dewitt. If I pronounce that incorrectly, I apologize. But it is um, a dialogue-free animated film, and again, I think it's one of the most painfully gorgeous things I've ever seen.
1: All right, I'm excited for this.
2: All righty, James. Lay it on me. What am I watching?
0: All righty. So I've actually had this one decided for you for a long time. I knew I was going to pick Uh-oh. it for this one in the past couple of months, but I've been meaning to assign you this just in general. And I'm actually going to stick with the same director for Rachel's assignment this time. So we're going to go with Greg Araki. And you're going to get his 1997 film, Nowhere. Now to describe oh, this. If John Waters and David Lynch had a baby. And that baby was raised by Andy Warhol. And then this child watched nothing but John Hughes movies, Beverly Hills 90210, The Twilight Zone, and 90s MTV. This film is the result.
1: That sounds that like is... much to fit in one movie.
0: <laughs> that's what I was gonna do. That sounds like a, that doesn't sound like a
2: smorgasbord pick. That sounds like a like a like a blender pick, like basically you're just shoving all of the foods on the board into like a blender and uh, stirring it up and seeing what happens. That's uh that's very interesting sounding.
0: Yeah, and it's uh and much like Splendor, it isn't actually being distributed in the States currently. Actually I don't think it's being distributed at all, so it's another one that it's on YouTube and it's on Internet Archive. It's also a short one, it's only 75 minutes so but also this movie and this is 1997 when you look at the cast between the principal cast and just the random cameos there are so many people in this movie that your brain almost explodes
2: i'm noticing that it's got uh, a lot of uh, 90s favorites like heather graham and Mina Savari. a lot of uh people i haven't heard of in ages uh including christopher knight from the brady bunch <laughs> he's showing up here uh yeah this is a scott Con, as ryan well uh, son of james Con. ryan, ryan Philippi is here as well uh, denise richards has wow, a cameo yeah, is, in it it's, it's, shannon
0: doherty has a cameo in it rose McGowan has a cameo in it john ritter has a cameo in it this is stacked yeah yeah, it's it's really strange because a lot of them literally have seconds on screen for the most part. It's just, it's such a, a cavalcade of madness. But I, I think you might, you at the very least, you'll find it interesting.
2: I always like interesting. I like uh, being taken outside of my comfort zone as well. So, sounds like I'm uh, going nowhere uh, with this next pick. Thank you so much for that. Alrighty. So, those are our three individual picks. We've got Holiday, The Red Turtle, and Nowhere. Now, this is for those of you who read Phil's Fatale and have personally emailed asking why I haven't checked out such and such person. This is proof that I listen. So, there's been a filmmaker that I've been meaning to check out for a very long time because a few of you have mentioned this filmmaker. And his name, if I don't butcher it, his name is Emir Rica. He is a Serbian filmmaker who has had a number of films been brought up a trillion times, especially, and this is one that, you know how they, there's like that expression, your, film, your favorite filmmaker's favorite filmmaker, or your favorite actor's favorite film? This is one of those instances. I'm suggesting Time of the Gypsies, for our collective pick. Have either of you seen this?
1: I have not.
0: I've never even heard of this. <laughs> well, this is
2: what I'm saying. Like, this is, uh, it's one of those ones where if you go to, like, websites and you see, like, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio discussing, their, fa- you know, his favorite films or, you know, ex-filmmaker or Y-actress. I've seen this brought up a lot. And I've had people messaging me, like, why have you not mentioned this filmmaker to me personally on films fatale so i'm doing you guys a solid we are finally checking out time of the gypsies i've heard nothing but exemplary things about this and i'm so stoked so how do we feel
1: this is gonna be great
2: i think we've got a really solid you know solid lineup for the month of february so fantastic thank you all so much for listening And now you know what you're going to be watching for the next month. You're going to be watching Time of the Gypsies as our collective pick. Otherwise, if you want to join in our individual picks, you're going to be doing Nowhere by Greg Araki, The Red Turtle, and Holiday. And otherwise, that was this month's edition of the Cinematic Smorgasbord. For our findings, please listen in the first Tuesday of February. Otherwise, the K-Cut runs every Tuesday in between. So that was the K-Cut that we are now going into the L cut.